Dear congregation, I remind you again that we are in the third mission journey of the Apostle Paul. The third missionary journey of the Apostle Paul. Now, remember that uh, Paul has uh, had made a promise previously that the, he would uh, preach again to the men or to the Jews in Ephesus. And on the second mission journey, he had promised that. And now on the third mission journey, he has returned to them. And so this is Paul's ministry in Ephesus, quite a long ministry. Uh, we talk about his missionary journey as if he went from place to place to place, but he spent almost three years in the city of Ephesus. And maybe even during that time, it's not entirely clear, uh, jumped across the pond there, right across the Aegean Sea, over to Greece again to visit the city of Corinth. It's unclear uh, it seems like he would have done that at least once, but maybe more. So again, Paul spent quite a bit of time in Ephesus. So Acts 19 gives us the ministry of Paul in Ephesus. And as was Paul's normal uh, practice, he first preached to the Jewish people. Verse 8, Acts 19 and verse 8, if you follow with me here, and he entered the synagogue, right? So he is now speaking to the Jewish people. Uh, people and trying to persuade them that Jesus is the Messiah that they should believe in. But when the Jews reject the gospel, as is you know happens in almost every one of these cities that Paul goes, uh, Paul turns to the Gentiles, and you can see there that he goes into the school of Tyrannus. Now all the teachers in here and all the children can uh, maybe you'd like to call your teacher Tyrannus because it means what it sounds like tyrant. I don't know if you think your teacher's a tyrant, but that's what, the, that's what this man means. So we're assuming that this is a nickname given to this teacher, that he was known as Tyrant, because I highly doubt his name was Tyrant. <clears throat> but at any rate, there you have Paul reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus with the scholars and the teachers there, uh, and now that would have been a Gentile school. So he would have, again, been speaking to Gentile people. So that's Paul's ministry in Ephesus. Now, as I consider this particular chapter that we have here, I'd like to consider these three people, Paul, the Jewish exorcist, and third, the residents of Ephesus. So let's begin with Paul, because in Ephesus we read that Paul doing his normal work, and yet in verse 11 we're told that God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. And then listen to this now, right, that even cloths, even articles of clothing, which Paul used, which touched him, were taken from Paul to the sick or to the demon-possessed, and they were healed just by touching the clothing of Paul. Now, again, that's not anything in Paul, right? That's the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember, we often call this book the Acts of the Apostles, but let's remember that this is the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit that comes and gave power even to the, to the handkerchiefs and the aprons which touched the Apostle Paul. So Paul doing extraordinary miracles. So that's my first point. And now I'm, I'm done with that point. I want to move right on to the Jewish exorcists because these are Jewish people who claim to have the power of throwing out demons, of expelling demons from a person's body. So children, I believe there's a, a note on this, right on your, on your uh, notes there. What is an exorcist? An exorcist is someone who casts out or throws out demons. Now, that might be something that we're not so familiar with today, is it? But uh, in those days, 
and, and actually probably in our day too, we might call it something else, but demons would take possession of a person's soul such that they, they, they commanded them and, and they, 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 the person became a slave to this demon. Now, these uh, Jewish exorcists were told about seven of them. Uh, Sceva is the father, and he had seven sons, and they were Jewish exorcists. They were people who claimed to be able to cast out demons. Now, we have met one of these men before. You'll remember on the first mission journey, Paul had gone to the island of Cyprus, and it was there that he met the, the proconsul, Sergio Paulus, who had a Jewish man who was, lit, uh, who was part of his... Uh, was a servant of this man who was an exorcist or who was a magician. Elemis, you remember him. Remember Paul had dealings with him. And uh, because of his insult to the Apostle Paul, the man was struck blind. Remember Elemis. We also had Simon the magician. Remember that when, uh, when Philip was doing ministry in Samaria in Acts chapter 8, that we met with Simon the magician who was so impressed with what Peter and John were able to do that he said, I want to be able to do that. And he asked uh, Simon and Peter if he could purchase. Remember, he wanted to buy the gift, and Peter uh, rejected that. Well, now we have a, a really a very similar situation where these Jewish exorcists are looking at Paul and thinking, wow, that's pretty impressive what he's able to do. I wonder if he could take me under his wing, if I could be like an apprentice under him, or if I could somehow have that kind of power. Well, as these Jewish exorcists think through this process, they notice something about Paul. They notice that whenever Paul does his exorcisms, when he casts out evil spirits, he does it in the name of Jesus. Now, they don't know who Jesus is. Or maybe they know enough about Jesus in terms of what the Apostle Paul has taught them, but really they know very little about Jesus. But they assume that if they, used, if they would just start using the name of Jesus... Well, let me put that in the context. You know, in those days, there were many different spirits, and, and you, you might have uh, uh, spirit A, spirit B, spirit C, right, whatever their names may have been, and then there's a fourth spirit. Uh, they just learned about him, spirit Jesus, right? And they assume that if they, would, if they would, you know, spirit A doesn't seem to work real well with them, but maybe it's because they're not, being, they're not using the right demon, or they're not using not the right demon, the right spirit, good spirit in, in this case, and, and, and they want to use the name of Jesus because that will be effective. Thinking that the name Jesus is just something that can be, anybody can just latch on to him and, and, uh, and, and use him for whatever purpose you might like. Now, of course, that's not how the name of Jesus is to be used in, in, by, by people. But they don't know that, and so they try. They, they try their luck with Jesus, and they say, I adjure you by Jesus, whom Paul preaches. You read that in verse 13. And, of course, uh, Luke cuts it off there, but to finish the sentence, I adjure you by the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, that come out of him. Come out of that man. Come out of that woman. And you can see that the success they have is, is pretty pitiful, right? Because the demon, uh, even evil demons, even evil demons recognize the name of Jesus. They know the power of Jesus, but they don't know who Sceva is or his sons. And so they end up beating this, uh, these, all, all eight of them. Imagine that. One man beats up eight people and, and, uh, he overpowers them. They flee out of the house naked and wounded. Now, when this story becomes known in the city of Ephesus, you can imagine it has a very dramatic effect. So that I move on to my third point now, residents of Ephesus. The residents of Ephesus are amazed. 
and we begin with the non-Christian residents of Ephesus. When this became known, I'm in verse 17, both Jews and Greeks who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was being magnified. Now, some of the residents of Ephesus were converted by this. They came to believe in Jesus. But all the residents of Ephesus recognized that the name of Jesus had a power that was far superior to whatever magic these other people were performing. And actually, in the, in the history books of the time, we know that the city of Ephesus was quite renowned for its magic. There were many of these magicians who had powers to do amazing things, and they flourished in the city of Ephesus. Remember, Ephesus was one of the uh, leading cities of the ancient world. <clears throat> so the city was renowned for its magic, but now people realize that the real magician is not, again, spirit A or B or whoever you may have relied on. The real powerful magician uh, is Jesus. Right? Now, of course, we, we, they didn't come to the point where they came to believe in Jesus, to repent of their sin, and to put their trust in Jesus. But they just began to magnify the name of Jesus, whether they became Christians or not, realizing that Jesus had a power, which all these other exorcists and the, and the, and the spirits that they professed to act in the name of didn't have the power that the name of Jesus had. Now, thanks be to God, many of these Ephesian people did become Christians, and they repented of their sin. But now, my friends, we come to look at the Christian residents of Ephesus, because now we, we can read on. In verse 18, many also of those who had believed. Now, that's very important, that word had believed. The reason they slipped that little word had in there is because it's telling us that these people were already Christians. They didn't become Christians when they saw what happened to the sons of Sceva. They were already Christians at the time. But when they saw what happened to Sceva and his seven sons, they became very convicted about something. Let's read about that. Verse 18. Many also of those who had, and we could, to paraphrase this, many of those who had already believed, who were already Christians, kept coming, confessing, and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So these Christians, too, even though they were Christians, had begun to adopt the use of this magic. They, too, had begun to dabble in these practices. Even the Christian residents, even the believers in Ephesus, had begun to dabble in these magic practices. But when they saw what happened to Sceva and his seven sons, when they heard that story, when they saw the power of the name of Jesus, who they already believed in, they were convicted too. They were convicted, and they realized that the magic that they were practicing was dishonoring to God. And they gathered up all the books of, uh, all, and of course not books like, like this, right? Not like a bound book, but more likely scrolls, or even maybe just lists of spells that they would cast. Uh, the, the list of the spirits who were particularly effective at uh, particular situations, whatever it may have been. But they gathered all this stuff up. Many of those would have been extremely valuable, right? You can think kind of like trade secrets, right? One exorcist would have like a really particularly effective charm or, or something, right? And they gathered all this stuff up and burned it to ashes. So that's really the story that we have here, my friends. 
in Acts 19 of the ministry of Paul in the city of Ephesus. And I'd like to move then to these, these points of application and spend some time considering this. My first point is this. This story that we read in Acts 19 clearly teaches us that there's another universe out there. There's another realm. It's the realm that we don't see or touch or feel. But for all that, there is a realm out there. We can call it the spirit world, if I can use that expression. It's not something we directly experience. But for all that, it's out there. There is that other world inhabited by both good spirits, angels, right? The angel of the Lord encamps round about those who fear him, we read in the Psalms. But also dark, evil spirits. And we know that these evil spirits are under the control of their leader, Satan. And they are doing all they can. We said it many times from this pulpit. They are doing all they can day and night to drag people down to hell with them. That is their sole mission in their life, is to drag people down to hell. We know that just as in the visible world there is the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Satan, so in this invisible world, this spirit world, there is the seed of the serpent, the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of Satan, and the seed of the woman, the kingdom of light, the kingdom of God. And you'll know that we have used that word many times. There is an antithesis between these two, isn't there? There is an eternal, well, it's not going to be eternal, but it, 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 is, it, is a, uh, it can't be remedied on this, on this side of, of, of glory. There is always going to be opposition between those two, both in the visible world and in the, the invisible world. There is good and evil. There is darkness and light. And we know that in that invisible world, those demons, okay, the evil spirits and the good spirits, the angels, they have a power to act in the visible world. I think pr probably it, it's one directional there. They can act in our world, but we can't act in their world. But they are able to act in this world. We see how the sons of Sceva were beaten to a pulp. Right? They, they fled the house naked and bleeding because this man, who had been possessed by a demon, beat them up because he didn't recognize the name of Jesus. Or he recognized the name of Jesus, but he didn't recognize who they were. And so he beat them up. And you see then how the invisible world, right? these, these evil spirits, have the power to act in this world in the same way that good angels have a power to act in this world to protect us and to keep us from harm. So let's be clear about that, my friends. There is an invisible world out there that we do not directly experience. Well, for all that, it is the clear teaching of Scripture that there is such a world, and we need to be aware of it. My second point of application, then, is defeated. Defeated. When Christ died on the cross, my friends, he put the nail in the coffin of that evil world. Both in the visible world and in the invisible world, evil has been defeated. That does not mean that it doesn't exist anymore. It doesn't mean that they still don't act and that they still don't do all kinds of mischief and harm in this world. 
But this evil world has been defeated. They, their final uh, elimination is certain. It will come on the last day. You might say then, everything that happens between the, 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 the death of Christ on the cross, when he cried out, it is finished, until that last day is more or less a mopping up exercise. The kingdom of God is growing and expanding. The kingdom of darkness is being defeated. It may not look that way. It may not appear that way. But we have a whole book in the Bible, my friends. We have a whole book in the Bible that, as it were, peels back the cover and allows us to look into that invisible world. You know what book that is? That's the book of Revelation, isn't it? The book of Revelation peels back the cover and allows us to see behind the scenes. What we don't see with our eyes or hear with our ears, we can read about. Because of the inspiration of the Spirit of God, John was inspired to write his book. And the whole book, basically from, from chapters 5 to the end, is, is, is showing us what's happening behind the scenes. And the Lamb is going to be victorious. And the serpent, the great dragon, is going to be destroyed. It hasn't happened yet, but, it, but it, it, it is in process. And we know that his defeat, the dragon's defeat, is certain. And that started when Christ said, it is finished. Now maybe we could say it even started before that, can't we? We go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, when God gave a promise, right, that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. So Christ has defeated the powers of darkness, the powers of evil, both in the invisible world and in the visible world. It might not appear that way to us now. It certainly doesn't appear that way, does it? But it is the case, and we believe it by faith because we're taught in Scripture this truth. So, my friends, that's the groundwork that I want to lay for this third application. First, I want you to be certain and to believe in your mind that there is such a world, an invisible world. Second, I want you to believe, to know that that world is defeated. Uh, in in fact, uh, we can see that even though the sons of Sceva were beaten up by an evil spirit, right, when Paul steps forward and says, in the name of Jesus, then the demons have to leave. They, are, they already show that they are under Jesus. Jesus has power over that world. And even the, even the cloths, right, the aprons, the handkerchiefs from Paul drove the demons out, showing the power of the name of Jesus. Not in the name of Paul, the power of the name of Jesus. So, the evil world is defeated. Well, that brings me then to my third point, because my friends, as I, as I considered this text, and you know these things come in the providence of God, right? As I considered this text, I can't help but think of the time of the year that we live in. When it seems as if for a, a, a once in a year, people begin to dabble with darkness. They begin to dip their foot a little bit, as it were, into that kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of the serpent. And we see these, the signs of it all around us, right, as the Halloween decorations come in upon us. There's a, a yard, two yards, by my house, and they have literally converted their yard into a cemetery. And the most ghoulish, obscene, fiendish pictures on these, on these uh, gravestones uh, skulls with blood running down the mouth. And, and, and why? What, what is it? 
Why, why is there these things? Why, why is there this, this, this desire to like dabble with darkness and with, with blood and with death and with ghosts and graves and skeletons? Well, my friends, I, I think that this chapter, again, comes to us in the providence of God at a perfect time. And it speaks to us in this very situation. And I believe that a passage like this teaches us that Christians should not participate in those celebrations. Now, I understand that you as Christians have to make your own application to the situation that you face in your life. I can't, I'm not going to give you a list of do's and don'ts, right? That would be most foolish of me to do. But as you think through the issue, my friend, this time of year in which we live, I want to give you three principles from this passage to think about and to apply in your own life. And again, I I speak especially to the heads of families today because you men have the responsibility of making these choices. In the culture around us, what are we going to participate in fully? What will we participate in partially? We'll we'll take this, but we're not going to do that. But also, and do we have the courage to do that in our day, my friends? I ask you this morning to say there are some things in our culture that we will not participate in at all. That these things, as dangerous as they are, we're going to to cut them off completely and not have anything to do with them. Three things that I want you to consider, my friends. Here's the first principle. The first principle is just the, the point that I made previously. That when we think about the antithesis that exists from the time of the Garden of Eden until now, between good and evil, between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness, why, my friends, would we fly the flag of the kingdom of darkness in our homes and in our lives for a week or a day out of the year? You see, I I believe, my friends, that in past days, Christians had a stronger sense of the antithesis that exists between good and evil in our culture. Maybe in our day we're much nicer, we're much smoother, and we, and we blur the, the distinction between the two, between the world and the church, between good and evil. And that's why I entitled this point, Dabbling with Darkness, because nobody wants to go over to darkness. Nobody wants to embrace it completely. But it seems like this time of year, even Christians begin to put one foot in that camp. You know, I I can't help but think of what's going on in Israel today. It doesn't work in our society because we really don't have such an inveterate enemy against us like Israel and Hamas. But can you imagine, my friends, if an Israeli family said, you know, once a year we're going to fly the flag of Hamas in our house. We're all going to have fun and and have a good time and we're going to fly the Hamas flag in our home. That's absurd. I mean, they'd rather die than put that flag up. But my friends, isn't it a similar situation when we look at our own world and our own culture and what they're celebrating this time of year and for us to sort of fly the flag of darkness, to fly the flag of evil in our homes and to participate in a celebration of so much that is dark and evil and that is explicitly so. Again, I'm not going to make the application for you. I think you know where I stand on this, don't you? But I I, I give you this principle to work through as a Christian in your own situation and in your own family. To think about that antithesis that exists 
between good and evil? And do you want to put your foot in that camp, even for a day out of the year? I ask you to consider that, my friends. I bring a a second principle, though. And really, I want to say, my friends, that uh, I hide behind this text this morning. I didn't choose this text. This text came up in, in our study of the book of Acts at this time of year. And as I sat in my study this, this, this week, I didn't think I could in good conscience pass by the obvious uh, application of this to our time. But look what we have in this text. We have good Christian people who looked around the culture at Ephesus and they saw these magic practices, the sorcery, the occult, and all this dark stuff that was happening around them. And they began to adopt some of it. They began to take some of this stuff into their homes. But when the Spirit of God came through the ministry of the Apostle Paul and the name of Jesus was lifted up, a radical change came in the life of these people. And they went through their houses and they gathered all that stuff up. And they put it on a pile and burned it. My friends, listen carefully to the text this morning. It doesn't say that they had a garage sale and sold it. It doesn't say that they threw it in the trash. It doesn't say that they passed it on to someone else, gave it away. They put it in a pile and burned it. I think, my friends, that gives us something of a sense that when the Spirit of God came into the life of these people and the name of Jesus was lifted up, they had a kind of contempt for this practice that they put it all in a pile and burned it. And the application is so clear for us, my friends, in our own families, that we too live in a culture. We too live in a culture that, would, that, that practices all kinds of things, much of it that is, is harmless and, and maybe even useful. Right? We, we, we confess that. But are we willing to confess this morning that some of it is unacceptable for Christian people and that these things have a way of sneaking and creeping their way into our families and that every now and again it's time to take stock, to step back and to look and to say, what has come into my house that is of the world, that is of darkness? What are the practices that we've begun to adopt, perhaps inadvertently, perhaps unintentionally, perhaps without a lot of thought, without thinking about it. These things have a way of sneaking up into my family. They have a way of sneaking into your family. And a text like this draws us up short and says, let's stop a minute. Let's take inventory of our household. Let's take inventory of the books that are on our shelves, the movies that are on our shelves. Nowadays, I guess it'd be the movies right, that are on our prime list or, or however you consume your media today, right? But let's look at that, and let's be discerning as Christians. It's possible, my friends, that some of us need to take stuff off our shelves and throw it in the dumpster. And a chapter like this, a story like this, brings this so to our minds. My friends, when you read this chapter, answer me honestly. No, don't answer me. Answer in your own conscience, honestly, What does God think of magic, of sorcery, of all that kind of stuff? What is God's thought upon it? 
you know, we can go back in Deuteronomy 19. Now you can say, well, that's, the, that's under the Old Testament. That's true. And so the laws that we have in Deuteronomy 19 are not binding on us today. But don't forget, my friends, that behind these Old Testament laws are universal principles that are still binding on us today, that we still need to apply in our life. And in Deuteronomy 19, <clears throat> sorry, Deuteronomy 18, there's a whole section here from verse 1, or from verse 9 to verse 14. There shall not be found one among you, one who uses divination, one who practices witchcraft, or one who interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or one who casts a spell, or a medium, or a spiritist, or one who calls up the dead. For whoever does these things is detestable to the Lord. And because of these detestable things, the Lord your God will drive them out before you. Again, I just ask you, my friends, I, I, this is not me giving you my opinion. I'm asking you as Christian people to take these principles and apply them in your own home, in your own family, and in your own life, in your own reading in your own watching, in your own practice, on October 31. When we think of books like, like the Harry Potter series, right? Which I know that's, that's controversial, but I never shy away from controversial things in the pulpit. And I'm not going to tell you to never read them or to read them. I'm just going to say, my friends, if the Harry Potter series had been on the shelf of a person in Ephesus at that time, would that have ended up on the burn pile? Or would that have ended up on their bookshelf at home in, in a pride of place? I, I leave that question for you to discern between you and your own conscience. What does God think of literature, of movies, and other such like things that focus, where the central plot is based on something magical, something, again, you know the kind of thing I'm, I'm talking about. I have to believe, my friends, based on this text and others, that God is not happy with such things. My third principle that I bring to you, my friends, is Jesus defeated evil on the cross. And will we bring it into our homes? That was my second point. Again, I submit that to you for your consideration. Jesus defeated evil on the cross. He said, it is finished. We have to be careful that we don't take that very evil and turn around and bring it into our homes and show it to our children and in our schools and in our churches. My friends, the application of these points is yours, right? That's how God expects us to live. I provide you the principles. God expects you to take these principles and to apply them in your own situation. I'll tell you a trick of the devil, my friends. What the devil will often do and say, well, it's difficult. So I just, I'm not going to deal with it. It's, too, it's just too hard. That is a trick of Satan, my friends. We as Christians have been given a mind and a reason, and God expects us to use it to take the principles of his word and to apply it to our life. And so let's act like Christians. Let's act like mature Christians and take these principles and live by them. By the way, I just can't help but think, too, my friends, especially last night, we had such a good time. All the other exciting things that you can do this time of year, right? With, with a, the carving of pumpkins, right? And the, and the football and, the, and, the, and, 
and well, I guess in this congregation, I should say, you know, we should all have a large collection of mums outside our, 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 our houses, right? And all these things that we do and celebrate in the fall season. What a, so many good and edifying things. Taking family pictures, right, with the fall colors. And, and, and there's so many other wonderful edifying things. And, of course, we're very happy that in the Reformed churches, uh, they conveniently parked Reformation Day right on October 31 so that you can just celebrate Reformation Day on that day and abandon Halloween to uh, the darkness and leave it behind. At any rate, my friends, those are the principles. I, I pray that God will enable you to make a good application of them. In my fourth application is we see here the principles of genuine repentance. Notice that these, that these Christians in Ephesus, they had made a mistake. They had fallen for something sinful. They knew it. They were convicted of it. And let's read these verbs. In verse 18, many of those who had believed, believing, kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices, and they burned them. My friends, we have a beautiful, complete description given us here of true repentance. First of all, believing. Repentance is only possible for a true believer. A non-Christian person cannot repent. He can feel sorrow. He can feel regret. He can feel uh, fear that he's going to be cast into hell because of his sin. But to repent, my friends, you have to have, by the way, I put the, from the Westminster Confession of Faith there because it puts that explicitly, right? He must have an apprehension, I underlined it for you, an apprehension of the mercy of God in Christ to such as are penitent. You must be a believer in Christ. If you're a non-believer tonight, I don't tell you to repent. I say you must put your trust in Jesus. Yes, you will repent. And yes, you must repent. But there's an order here. First, you must be a believer in Jesus. So, in the first place, they were believing. Second, they were coming. They were coming. Usually when we sin, we run away from God. We run from God. But to true repentance, even though we have a fear, right, and a respect for the wrath of God against our sins, and that's why you have to be a believer. That's why how sweet the name of Jesus sounds, as we, as we said it this morning. We come to God. We come to the very one who's angry with us because of our sins. Believing, coming. Not fleeing away, but coming. Confessing, right? We read that they were confessing and disclosing their practices. My friends, we have to lay it all out before God. If you're living in a sin right now, my friends, confess it. God already knows. Lay it all out before him. Why? When we confess our sins, we own it. We take responsibility for it. We accept the guilt of it. We accept the punishment of it. So we must confess our sins, as these Christians did in Ephesus. Imagine the tears, my friends. Imagine the shame. Imagine the embarrassment. I wonder if, if in Covenant United Reformed Church we have even enough humility in our minds and in our hearts to confess our sins. That takes a measure, that takes a great deal of humility. But they had the humility because the Spirit of God was at work. They confessed their sins. But second of all, you have to burn it. That means you have to find that sin, isolate that sin, and put it to death. True repentance does not stop with just confessing it or owning it. It must act. There must be a firm, stubborn resolve to put that sin to death. And we see that so 
uh, clearly illustrated in this text that these people brought 50,000 pieces of silver. My friends, one piece of silver would have been like a day's wage, roughly, for a, for a, a day laborer. One piece of silver. 50,000 pieces of silver they estimated this to be. Again, in our own currency, we'd say roughly like a millions of dollars. And it was burned to ashes. Why? Because the Spirit of God had lifted up the name of Jesus. And their sin and the name of Jesus could not exist in the same heart. And so they got ruthless. They got no compromise. No compromise with sin. They took it out and they put the match to it. And that, my friends, gives us such a, a beautiful illustration of true repentance. Because as we read uh, after the, the reading of the law today, right, that true repentance makes us zealous. It gives us a, a fury, an anger, as it were, against sin. We recognize sin to be the enemy. We recognize that Satan is using that sin to drag us and our families down to hell. And it makes us angry. This is righteous anger, my friends. When you fall into sin, anger is an appropriate response. Find that sin put it to death, and live to God's glory. My friends, may God give us that kind of anger, that kind of zeal, as we face sin in our life. To God be the glory. Let us pray. Lord, we draw near to you at the close of this sermon, and we see this picture, Lord, of, this, of the brutal way the Ephesian Christians dealt with the sin in their life. And Lord, it's so difficult to live in the culture in which we live, where there are so many things that cause us uh, to wonder, to ask questions, so many things that require from us a good deal of discernment. Lord, your word has said that if any man lacks wisdom, if any woman lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who giveth liberally and who rebukes not. Lord, we pray that you would give us then that wisdom to know also in this matter, Lord, of, of the whole realm of magic and sorcery and, 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 and the, the other world, Lord, that we don't see. Lord, your word has spoken to us this morning. I pray that you would now help us to make an application of that to our families and our, for our children, for our schools, for our church, and for ourselves individually. Lord, I pray that you would remember us then in your mercy. Help us to live lives that honor and glorify your name. And Lord, where we have fallen on these points, where we have slipped, where we have perhaps opened the door of our own house uh, a little too far for some of these things, Lord, give us to be humble enough to have the strength enough to repent of it, to confess it to you, and to burn these things to ashes. Lord, help us to be ruthless with the sin in our life and never to brook even the least compromise with it. Lord, remember us then in your mercy. Bless the congregation. We pray that you would bring us back again this evening for another message to place ourselves again under the administration of your holy word. Lord, we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn in the red hymnal to number 539. Number 539. In verse 3, we hope to sing, Are there no foes for me to face? Must I not stem the flood? Is this vile world a friend to grace, to help me on to God? A good question for us to meditate on today. But let's sing the six verses of 539 in the red hymnal.
peace, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the communion with the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.